I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and I'm going to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going when times got tough. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jonathan Green. He's a best-selling author of more than 300 books. He's now living the dream on a tropical island in the South Pacific. Jonathan is a digital marketeer with a mailing list of more than 100,000 subscribers. He's the host of a podcast with more than 200 episodes. I mean, the list just goes on and on. He's been running an online business full-time since February 2010, and he's an expert in celebrity ghostwriting, high-ticket affiliate sales, and using a book to build a mailing list of these hundreds of thousands of customers. What he does... He helps new entrepreneurs find the skills, assets, or relationships they need so they can generate real revenue quickly and start replacing their existing nine to five job. This is going to be an interview of questioning yourself, defining your purpose, and marketing for success. Let's bring in the great man himself. Welcome to the show. Jonathan Green. Thank you so much hey. for having me here. That wonderful and kind introduction. I'm so excited to be here and glad to spend some time together and hopefully you'll enjoy some of my stories. Oh, wonderful. Uh, you look really good. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited. Okay. So within the introduction there, I said you're in a, a remote island in the South Pacific living the dream. So where is that? Where are you right now today? Yeah, I bounced, I'm always bouncing around different islands between Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Bali, Philippines. And so I'm often living on different islands, actually, between my different stories. And so it's always somewhere different, but I'm always trying to have that next adventure. I just love living on the beach. Even before I started this career, you know, I spent time in Japan, I spent time in England, and I realized I just love islands. Wow. So describe the weather. What can you see today? Well, it's, we have two types of weather here, rain, summer. There's no winter, there's no <laughs> fall, and the rain is always hot. So it's always super blazing here. So even in the middle of the night when I'm recording, I start sweating. So just looking outside, right outside my window, there's a ton of boats where all the tourists do parasailing and things. Right now it's evening, so they're not driving around, but I can still see my lights on and they're just getting ready for the next day. And uh, I also live in the middle of the jungle. So if you look to the left and the right, there's usually monkeys playing in the trees. They often come right next to us. 
So we live somewhere just very different than the city life I grew up in in Los Angeles. Wow, that's incredible. Well, that that's the point I want to come back to now because I want to find about Jonathan, the person, the backstory. I can't wait to find out about the many books you've written and what it takes to create more than 300 books, which is just amazing. But I want to take you back to your early life to begin. So three questions to get us going then. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up, Jonathan? So I was born in Los Angeles. I grew up in the Valley, San Fernando Valley, near movie studios and movie stars that life. My family lived there till I was 10. Then we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, which is a huge transition from living in a huge city to a much smaller city and a really big difference. And the biggest challenge for my childhood was really, I really struggled to make friends. I didn't have any friends till I was 17. So my biggest struggle was trying to understand why some kids liked each other, why some kids were popular, not popular, and why I couldn't fit in. And it was just a really struggle. I was one of those kids that sometimes I come and I would cry, like, why doesn't anyone like me? Why can't I figure this out? Why am I so socially awkward? And so that was part of my childhood. So one of my big passions was I just wanted to figure it out. And when I was 17, I met my first person who was popular and nice. I'd never encountered that before. So I studied him. It was acquaintance of my brother. And I just studied everything he did, how he talked to people, his conversational structures and how he behaved. And so I just really focused on becoming popular. I said, I want people to like me. And so I studied and started modeling him. And he was really my hero. We were friends for like a long time. And I learned so much from that. So a lot of my career comes from desire because that's really where I started to forge my business ideas. And then my dream for growing up, I was like, oh, I just want to have friends. I just want to have like a wife and kids and a white picket fence and kind of just a life of normalcy. That was really my dream when I was younger to fit in more than anything else. Okay. Uh, and what about career? Had you thought about what kind of job you wanted? College, university, uh, any of those in mind? Yeah, really thought that I would be an FBI agent. I was so passionate about the FBI. I even had like some friends whose parents were FBI agents and I got all these things. And I thought, I really thought going into college, that's really what I want to do. You know, I didn't know if I would go college and then law school or become an accountant or become a police officer and then join the FBI. I knew the three ways to join. I knew all the admissions questions, all the requirements. And I really thought that was the direction I was going in when I went to college. And of course, that didn't end up becoming my path. I realized I needed more and more control of my own destiny. Okay. So what's life like for you now? Do you like to live alone, isolated on an island? Or do you prefer a few friends around you? I really like living in the middle of nowhere. I don't really like spending time with people outside my family. I have four kids, all my time with them or my wife. So all of my social interactions, I have a lot of friends through business and contacts that I see sometimes when I travel. So I have a lot of online relationships that started in person at different places around the world. And most of the people I know on the island, they don't, they're not really business contacts. They don't understand what I do. So I don't really talk about work when I'm not but I've lived in big cities. I've lived in really urban areas. I've lived in London. I've lived in Los Angeles. I've been in the middle of the action and I'm over that fate. I really like that we have quiet, that we get left alone, that we can do whatever we want. When my kids come home from school, you know, they can be as loud as they want. There's no neighbors to shout at them, have like that level of freedom. That's really something that's been big to me. And I think that's something I picked up when I was living in Tennessee. When I moved from LA to Tennessee, I saw, wow, you can have space between you and your neighbors to go to all the national parks, swimming with my friends. And you can go swimming in a river and there's nobody you can see. 
So the, I didn't even know there were places in the world that weren't crowded. So once I started seeing that, that's when I'm really interested in that. Sometimes I like to be in the middle of the action. And a lot of times I just like having my own space. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I like to go visit somewhere and be in the middle of the action, like London, Dubai or LA or somewhere. But then it's wonderful to come home. And uh, I live somewhere nice and quiet out in the countryside too. So I really, really resonate with that. So whilst doing my research about you, Jonathan, I found out that you were once caught in a blizzard. I got fired in the midst of that blizzard and I have a bunch of questions. I'll give you the questions and then you can decide how you unravel them and explain what happened. So what was the job you got fired from and... Having been fired whilst in a blizzard, because there's lots of stuff going on then as well for your own safety, I'm sure. What was your mindset at the time? What was going through your mind? And then afterwards, how did you pick yourself up and where did you go from there? What happened in your life? So I thought it was my dream job. I got my master's in London and I moved up in my industry, which was applied linguistics and teaching English as a foreign language to, and I've worked with some real, some of the biggest companies in the world. I've worked with them teaching their foreign employees. So I'd really reached the top of that industry. I was running a multi-million dollar program at one of the top 20 universities in the United States. I was in charge of teachers. I had transitioned out of teaching and into admin. I basically only had to teach one hour a week as part of my qualifications. And it was this huge project, huge responsibility. I'd never been in charge of so many teachers before. And there is no higher job in that industry. So at 30, I was as high as you can get. And I got the job. So at 29, the highest peak of my career. And I was like, there's nowhere else for me to go from here. And it was like stability. My parents were so excited because there's a name of a big university and they can show off my business cards to people. They handed out more of my business cards than I ever did. With this new job, I took the letter, the job offer, and I went and I bought a new car. I signed a lease on an apartment over the weekend. And then that Monday, I lost the job. I came in in a blizzard in my new, my new convertible sports car. And I'm driving it in a blizzard to work. Like, wow, I'm so responsible. I'm such a good employee. I'm not calling in when so many people would on a day like this. And I come in and they're like, yeah, we don't anymore. And driving home, I was like, if I crash, that's too ironic. I cannot let that happen. That's all I was thinking about. And I realized we, our bosses have so much power over us. Not only can you lose your job, you can lose your income stream, you lose your ability to pay your rent, pay your insurance, you lose your insurance, you lose the ability to pay for your kids to just go to school or pay for food because the money stream is so important. So it was that feeling as I was driving back home, I said, I never want someone to have this much power over me again. I never want to feel this way again. So that's really what's driven me. And that's really the core of all my messaging. What I teach for other people is that you just have to be in control of your destiny because there's not really anyone else looking out for you. Other than people in your family and maybe a close friend or two, your boss doesn't care about you. If it comes down to your boss or you losing their job, it's always going to be you. And that's a hard lesson. A lot of people have learned that over the last few years, but I, was, I learned it about 12 years ago. And driving home in that blizzard, I said, I've got to change, make a change. And I don't ever want to be in this position again. I'm and I could have gotten other jobs in that industry, but I would have had to take a step down because I had the highest job in the world. There's no better job anywhere. So that career was done. I was tired of doing it anyways. Um, I'm still a teacher. You know, I still do a lot of teaching and writing books and teaching, but my time in the classroom was over. And so I began to move into the next phase of my adventure. And it really was, I want to start my own business. I want to do something online. I want to have 
total control. My first thought was really, I want to start a job where I never have to talk to anyone else ever again. And obviously <laughs> that's not really true. My perspective of online at the time, I learned, no, it's all handshakes and friendships and relationships. But that was my perception that, oh, you can build an online business, never talk to anyone ever again. And that's really what me to it was that I could build a business where no one had any power over me. And that's really been my driving force this entire time. Yeah, I can really relate to that too. A similar thing happened to me in that I was in employment and I decided to leave and set up by myself. And friends and family said to me, wow, you're going in business by yourself? Isn't that risky? You know, and the way I positioned that was, you have less risk when you're in business by yourself. I think, as you quite rightly say, you could get fired tomorrow. Your boss has so much power over everything. And so that's that's the way I positioned it too, so I can relate to that. So you didn't want to speak to anybody again. So here we are on a podcast on the other side of the world. So you then move forward into this online business. You're on this remote island. You move around and around. But what's it like to live on a remote island in the South Pacific, many times in the Philippines, as you said, and how do you go about conducting business from a place like that? So there's pros and cons to living everywhere, right? There are yeah. certain things I have access to. If I want to see an opera, not an option. Uh, you know, I've lived on different islands. The island we live on now actually has a movie theater, which we haven't had for the last seven or eight years. And so we kind of have these different things. Amenities aren't available. Most of the fun activities are free, though going surfing, going kayaking, going windsurfing, anything, as long as you have your own board, then there's no cost. So you, everything you do is outside. There's very few indoor activities here. There's no laser tag. There's not a lot to do if you don't like the ocean. So sometimes people visit me, they're like, oh, I don't like going outside. I'm like, what are you doing here? Right? There's not <laughs> restaurants, but the trade-off is the cost of living is very low. There's a lot of freedom. You can really do what you want. There's a lot less pressure from other people. You don't have people looking over your shoulder all the time, dressed to perform. When you live in a bigger city, whether it's New York or Miami, there's always this pressure to compete with the Joneses and your neighbors to have the best car, the best apartment. That's really an issue here. There's not much as much of that financial pressure, which I really appreciate. And I just like really freedom. It's kind of the, my main driving force. I can do what I want in the day. I can go where I want. There's no one really telling me how to raise my kids or where they go to school. I have total control over those decisions. There's not someone external looking in. And the trade-off is, of course, that there's also, if you have trouble, there's not someone else looking in. So you have to take care of yourself. Like if you're out surfing and you get pulled off into the wind, there's no Coast Guard coming for you. So you have to take a higher level of responsibility. You have to be really responsible for your health. You have to be really responsible for your education, your finance. So there is a trade-off, but it's the right trade-off for me. As far as living remotely, when I first started living on islands about seven or eight years ago, my wife and I visited an island when we were first dating. I said, this is where I want to live. It was a really great surf spot. Uh, and we started, we decided we we're going to live there. We built a two-year plan because at that island, sometimes the power would go out for three to five days and the internet would go out for up to a week at a time. So that's when I really shifted to the books business model. Before that, I was doing tons of live presentations, live webinars, all sorts of live video. You can't do that with no internet for a week. So I really shifted to a model, which is putting my content in places where the business sell. Amazon will keep selling my books, whether I have internet or not, whether I'm alive or dead, the business keeps running, the revenue keeps coming in from those processes. So I really focused on shifting to that. 
I don't need to be online model. Of course, since then, the internet's gotten much faster. I now have gigabit internet at in my house, which is something I didn't even know you could get in this part of the world, but it has shifted. But a lot of it comes down to choosing a business model that works with where you want to live. If I wanted to do something totally required face-to-face meetings, I couldn't run an in-person podcast studio here, which I would love to do if I was living in America or I was living in England. That's what I would do, have people come over and shoot there in person. I would do that. That's not an option. So there's these trade-offs. And you have to choose a business model that allows you to not be online. Um, and sometimes things happen where you lose internet access here, you lose power, power goes out, her generator wasn't working the other day when the power went out. So having things in place, you kind of prepare for that. That's why we have a generator. I have a backup battery on my router. So if the power goes out, the internet will keep running for 21 hours. All of these things you don't think about in America. You, you don't think, oh, what if the power goes out for a week or two? So we have additional things we've kind of built structures here and preparations that you don't think about in America or you don't think about in the West. Mostly it's choosing a business model that adapts. Now, I also mostly work nights. I do some work during the day, but I, I spend my days with my kids and I mostly work when they're, they're asleep right now, which means that's when I get all my work done. And that's when America's awake and England's awake. So it's a trade-off, but that was very intentional. I chose a business model that allows me to do the things I want. I want to spend all days with my kids. Awesome. Awesome. As you say, there's a trade-off for both. So I know you've written and published over 300 books. 300! That is amazing. But I want to take you back in time because I want to find out about your first book. Because there might be somebody listening who says, yeah, I have a book in me. How do we get started with doing that? So I want to take you back to your first book and consider your mindset at that time. So who was that first book written for and why did you decide to write it? So my first experience came from a blog. In around 2007, I started writing about my dating life because I was so bad at dating. All the things that were funny. It was not, it was not a story of me being like amazing with women. It was my story of the weirdest things happen. Like I went on a date with a woman and I said, Hey, do you want to kill me? And then a bird pooped on her head as I said that. And I said, that only happens to me. You don't that's the kind of thing you only expect in a movie. So I was having these adventures where just the craziest things would happen. Like I was standing in a bar one time and I said to a girl, are you in line? And she just started crying and ran out of the bar. And I, I still don't know what happened. I was like, that probably wasn't my fault. There must've been something else going on but all these crazy misadventures. And I would write about how I'm bad at dating and all these things would happen to me. And it was just myself. My inner understanding of the internet was so rudimentary. I thought, oh, you start a blog because it's a diary and no one will ever find it. But I was wrong. Uh, within two or three years, it was the number one blog in the world. If you typed in, get a girlfriend, it came up with my website. So that's why everyone was finding me. And this publisher, a direct response publisher, had a really, really well-known book called The Magic of Making Up, which is how to get back with your ex very popular topic, doing millions of dollars in sales. And they reached out to me and they say, Hey, we love your blog. Would you be willing to write a book for us for women? And I said, Oh, that's very interesting to me. Of course, right? Huge business, much bigger than me, much bigger numbers, madly successful, great at things I'm not great at. And they offered me a great percentage. I still get royalties every single Wednesday. I get a direct deposit from those sales more than 10 years later. And that project was really hard. It took a year from that, that phone call to my first dollar. Huge long time frame, which is what I learned about working with other people. And I really learned a lot because the writer I worked with 
Uh, Travis was a much better writer than me, much more experienced, a better copywriter. So I wrote the first draft of the book in a single week. I think I wrote it in about 25 hours. I really did a lot of research and put together a lot of ideas. And so when I was writing and he looked at it and said, well, these chapters are all out of order and your chapter titles are terrible. He goes, just look at the chapter titles. No one wants to read this book. So I learned that changing the number of chapters around in a book is so revelatory. When he gave me the new chapter order, I went through and rewrote everything and the book was 10 times better. So one of the big lessons I learned from him in the editing phase, moving the chapter order around can really make a huge difference and it changes everything. And this has also happened for some really big movies where the first version was terrible. They move the scene order around and suddenly people love it. So that was a really good lesson in learning how important the chapter titles are and spending time on that is. That really affected my projects later. So um, and that one was a co-write. So I wrote it, then he wrote it, and then I wrote it. And we kind of went back and forth so that there was a final version where you could tell the two voices because he's about 20 years old. Than me. So he wrote about being married for a long time. And I wrote about being single and trying to find the one. And it, that process, I just learned a lot. So working with a mentor on a project who'd been there before was just really a boon for me, a great advantage. So I learned a lot from that process and it kind of gave me that confidence. So that was the first book I ever really and made money from. That's a direct response book. It's actually $67. So it's an ebook. And I was amazed you could sell books for that. And it still sells. We sold over 100,000 copies. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to rewind you a little because I've got a couple of questions there. How do you manage to write a book in 24 hours? So everyone has something that they're really good at. That's my one thing. So of all the things I do in my business, writing fast is my personal superpower. It's not everyone's, but I'm just a really fast writer. That's why one of my books is about how if I'm on a computer, I write 2000 words a day, which is what many writers write in six months. So that's just my one really good thing. And everyone has different things that they're excellent at. So it doesn't have to be speed. A lot of what I've shifted to since then, I dictate all of my books now and everyone can dictate as fast as I type. So it's really a great equalizer. But a lot of it is understanding like if you understand what causes writer's block, then you'll never have it. Writer's block only happens for a seat your pants writer. There's a type of writer who sits down and goes, I don't know what's going to happen and starts typing. And the book is full of surprises when you are making a decision. So there's two parts of your brain. There's the decision-making part of your brain and there's creative part of your brain. There's deciding what you're going to paint and then there's painting it. It's the left and right brain. And I might have the reverse, but that's really important to separate these two parts of the writing process. The decision-making process and the creative process need to be separated. So if I'm working on a book and I'm writing a chapter, I go, and I see a blank spot in my outline, I go, what's supposed to go next? It derails me and it derails everyone. That's where writer's block happens, where you go, I don't know what's going to happen next. It's not, I know it's going to happen next. I don't know how to write it. That's not writer's block. So writer's block is when you don't do decision-making in advance. So when I have an outline, the way I write is I do three outlines. I do an outline that's just a chapter titles. Then I do the chapters and the subtitles within the chapter. And then I write three bullet points under each of those. By that point, everything that's going to be in there, it's about 500 words between bullet points. So that's about five minutes of talking. If I can talk about each bullet point for five minutes, I have a complete book done. My books are anywhere from 25,000 to 110,000 words. So I've written really long books this way. The main mistake people make is trying to be linear, thinking that I have to write a book in the same way that people read it which is I just write chapter one, I write chapter two, I write chapter three with no planning. That's the worst way to write because it's really hard. Now, the problem is there are a couple of people who are really successful who do that, but they're the aberration. They're the one in a thousand. That's the hardest way to create. 
learn an outlining process and there's a lot of different outlining processes, then the writing becomes really easy because you're just painting by numbers or filling in the blanks. And that's an easy way to write. Anyone can write 500 words on a topic. That's not hard. But sitting down with a blank piece of paper and a typewriter, that's hard. Yeah, I love that. That makes sense. I'm just in the process of mapping out a book myself. Uh, thank for I, my previous ones, I had to sit down and type. But this one, I've decided to dictate. So uh, the, the previous ones are technical ones, which are pretty difficult to dictate. I don't think you could do them, actually. But this new one, that's exactly what I've done. And uh, as you say, it's a lot, lot easier to do that because you're just filling in the blanks with 500 words, which is, we speak at about 160 words a minute. So as you quite rightly say, if you can speak for five or six minutes on the bullet point that you've made, you soon get your book built. Okay, I want to rewind again. You talked about the importance of chapter titles. I get that, but can you give us some examples? What were your first chapter titles? Why were they so crappy? And what did you replace them with? What were the good ones and what's the difference? I don't remember that well because it was so long ago. I remember the conversation more than the actual result, mm -hmm. but they were just really boring and dry. It was like, because originally the original title of the book, when I was writing, it was called The Girlfriend Project, which is, it sounds like a sitcom, right? It doesn't sound like a book for women. It sounds like it's for men. So the titling was totally wrong. And that's just the way I always was. Went through a lot of phases. So when we were coming up with the name of the book, when Travis brainstorming and I, my idea, the second best idea was The Ring Magnet, which is because it was a, the book is about how a woman can get go from girlfriend to engaged to get your boyfriend to pose, make him fall in love with you. And he goes, well, that sounds like a Lord of the Rings sequel, right? It sounds too much like Smeagol is the ring magnet. So he goes, what about girl gets ring? Much better title. So part of it is brainstorming and thinking about how people will perceive it. Um, and this has happened with a lot of my books. I've come, I come up with really bad titles that I have to change sometimes. My best book, my flagship book called Serve No Master, Originally, I was going to call it There Is No Spoon, which is like a Matrix reference, and it's too clever, right? When a title is too clever and people can't figure out what you mean, or it's like an inside joke, then the people who don't get it will get really annoyed to be pushed away. And I also learned, you know, when people are looking like at a book on Amazon, a lot of people will click um, the look side button and the look at the table of contents. So you have to have a flow and things that sound really good. That's what gets people excited. So I learned a lot that the chapter titles aren't informative. They're not descriptive. They're like salesy. They're like getting you excited, right? Like making him fall in love, getting him to propose. That's a lot more exciting than like relationship phase two and relationship phase four. So those are the kind of mistakes <laughs> I was making. And it was just really descriptive and boring. That's really more copywriting than writing. Those are the two types. Like copywriting is sales writing, content writing is telling a story, and just learning how to merge the two skills is what took me a lot longer. Okay, so how can we go about learning copywriting? That's the stuff that sells books from what you're saying. Yeah, so copywriting, there are so many really, really expensive methods for learning copywriting. And they take a really long time and they're really hard. The secret and the way I learned it is that you look for old advertisements that are more than 100 years old. I love ads in the early 1910s and 1920s. It's amazing 
how many of the problems people had a hundred years ago are exactly the same as right now. How to sound smarter, how to be more attractive, how to better have a better looking bum. All of these things, those are all these men's products about how to have like the perfect buns inside your jeans. I love these ads from the 1920s because if you wanted to sell a product in a magazine, someone sees the ad, they have to cut it out of the magazine. They have to go to the bank and get a cashier's check, which almost no one knows how to do now. Then you go to the post office with two envelopes and you have to include the postage there and the postage back for whatever you've ordered and put it on an envelope. And then you give it to the post office. You have to wait in line. You can't just put it, mail it the regular way. You have to wait in line and do the whole thing at the counter. Then you wait four to six weeks for your book or special underwear to arrive. And that's, nobody can do that anymore. No one sells like that now. Now when we sell online, right, it's just a button and people click and log into PayPal or enter credit card or it's already saved in their browser. But back then, to get someone to do all of that work and then wait more than a month for it to arrive, that's a level of copyright that's really hard. They're very interesting and they're so funny. All of these products from back in the day that I just love. And I take these ads and you just get a notebook and you spend 30 to 60 minutes a day just copying ads by hand. You copy the formatting, the bullet points, the big letters, the small letters, and you'll really learn structure. And the good thing is if you accidentally steal from these old ads, they're all out of copyright because they're all over 75 years old. So you can pull whole cloth from them. They've entered the public domain. So you're allowed to use them just like people are now allowed to make Winnie the Pooh movies because it's out of copyright. So that really is the best way to learn. It doesn't cost anything. You can just search old ads. You can search copyright and you can search great ads from the past. And that's what I did. I built, I have a PDF of about 700 ads that I use and I just copy by hand. Really the only thing you need to do to learn because it gives you a feel for structure and what kind of words people respond to. Awesome. Awesome. So when you first started writing books and you say you used to sell them and now you've switched to giving them away. So why did you switch from selling books to giving them away for free? What was the brainwave there and why? So in 2015, 2016, I started putting a lot of books on Amazon under my name, under pen names, and with some client projects. And that gives you access to the entire Amazon customer. Right? If you have a book doing well in the ecosystem, it continues, they drive its sales for you. It can do really well. The problem is you don't own your business. So if someone buys your book on Amazon, you don't know their name, you don't know their email address, and you can never talk to them again. So you have to use structures in your book to get them to give you your email address. So here's a bonus. Here's a special gift. Here's an additional chapter. You're always trying to get that contact information. And if you're absolutely killing it, I'm talking if you're the best copywriter in the world, you'll get 30%. Three out of 10 people who buy their book will give you their email address. And that's you know where now when I give away my book, I get 100% of the email addresses. The royalty from book sales is very low. It's if your book is $2.99 to $7.99, that's the average for an ebook on Amazon, you're gonna make two to seven dollar sale. But that's not true because you're not factoring Amazon's additional fees. Amazon advertising is really, really expensive. It's more expensive to buy a click on it, click on Facebook by a lot. So I could run an ad on Facebook and get an email address for the same price as one click on Amazon. And not everyone who clicks on Amazon buys your book. So the advertising costs were just getting really high. And I also realized that when there's a critical part of your business you don't control and you don't control your page on Amazon, Amazon can delete your account. They do it to authors all the time. Or they can decide to de-index your book or push you down and stop driving sales because they have a new author that they prefer to you in that category. And your business can disappear. Or you can get a really bad review 
that they keep showing. I have a really bad review on my best book. I have five five-star reviews and three one-star reviews, and all three of the one-star reviews are on the listing page. So it makes it look like if you scroll down to the reviews, you go, oh, this book is terrible. And it's like, no, it's the same person created different accounts because you can tell by the way the article, the thing is written because you're always going to have a someone who's like not a fan. No matter what book you write, you're going to have at least 10% people that give it a bad review. There's about 10,000 people that have written negative reviews of Harry Potter on Amazon. They took the time to write, take a book with tens of thousands of reviews and write these negative reviews. So it's always going to happen. And if the bad review rises to the top, your book sales die. And that's what was happening to me. The cost of advertising going up was pushing down conversion. So it took more people would have to see the book before they would buy it. They would have to see the better reviews. I have so many glowing reviews, so many video reviews, but it can happen. I realized even before some of my book sales were trailing off, I go, this isn't going to last. I was spending $5,000 at least per month on ads on Amazon and I was break even. I wasn't making any profit. So I was spending $7 to generate a $7 sale and I wasn't even getting the email address right, of the customer. So I'm constantly at break even and just the back end of my business where all the money made. And I said, oh, I'm giving away my books. I'm not really selling books on Amazon. I'm not getting paid for them. So I said, you know what? What if I just give the books away myself and I get everyone's email address? And it changed my business. It really changed that. And the second mindset shift was I stopped seeing other authors as my enemies because I used to think, oh, if someone reads that book, they'll never read the book, which is not true. Nobody only reads one science fiction book or one romance novel or one business book. Everyone who, everyone I know with one parenting book has five more, right? So I realized that I could be collaborative instead of competitive. And that I could just start sharing readership with authors who were doing ads, who were competing on Amazon. And I could just leverage what they were doing and focus on the parts of my business that were much, much more effective, which is the back end and the coaching and the hiring products and all the other parts of my business that are that are profitable. Okay. So having a successful book is about successful marketing. So what I want to ask you now, your superpower is writing at speed. But first of all, you have to decide on what book to write and for whom. So what's that process that you go through to think, okay, I'm ready to write another book and I think it should be about this. How do you make that decision and what process do you go through? So my process is I have a notebook of ideas with a couple hundred book ideas in it. And I write those ideas. And then I have another notebook with outline. I have probably 50 or 70 books outlined that I haven't written. So I write out the outlines. And what I do then is I look at all of my outlines and all of my ideas and I see which one will people want the most, which topic is selling the most and people are interested in. A lot of things that can really help people, nobody is interested in. They don't sell. So I'm very research driven. It's okay. Like a lot of people think that I'm saying, oh, you can't write what you want to write. That's not it. If you have 10 ideas, choose the idea that will make the most money. That's my mindset. It will sell the most copies. So that's really what I do. I have a lot of ideas and I'm very research. driven. so then what I look for to be very specific, if I have a topic I want to do, I look to see, are there five books on Amazon that are in the top 30,000 in the rankings? If it's in top 30,000, it means it's making at least hundred dollars a month. Sometimes people say, oh, there's one book doing really well. That's not a market you want to enter. It means the decision's already been made. People said, oh no, this is the book. Like if you want to enter the space about um, decluttering your home, there's one book on there by Marie Kondo, The Art of Tidying Up, 
that takes 99% of the revenue. So you can have the second best book. That book does about $25,000 a month. Second best book about tidying up your home and this idea of decluttering makes about $100 a month. So there's a huge drop-off. So there are certain categories where we've said, no, this is the book we've already decided, right? There might be another book that's similar to the seven habits of highly effective people, but that's the book for the last hundred years. That's kind of, no, this is the topic, right? So it's very hard if there's a decision, no, this is the best book on this topic. So you want five books that are all doing okay, rather than one book that's doing, oh, if I'm in fifth place, I'll still make money, right? You want the opportunity to be, you don't have to win to be profitable. That's what I really look for. I look for that. And then research is everything. I look at the outlines of those books. I look at the best and worst reviews. So one of my most successful books is my book about writing and launching books on Amazon. And I noticed a competitor whose a lot of his reviews were like, well, this book assumes you already have a huge following and huge social media following. So my entire book is about, well, if you have no following and starting from zero. And I was able to capture all of his one-star reviews became five-star reviews for me. So that's really what I do in my research phase. And I look at everything from cover design, how many words are in the title, what style of images on the title, what colors are people using on their covers. I look at all of those elements so that people can tell that my book belongs in there. So I'm very research driven as far as the planning, as far as making sure I have the content as I answer those questions. One of my first, my first really big success was a book about potty training your children. I potty trained my kids. Nobody will buy a potty training book written by a man wrote it under a female pen name because I looked, I said, every potty training book is by a woman. Nobody wants a book by a man. And then also I noticed that there were complaints from parents who had multiples, which is if you have uh, twins or triplets, it's a different process for potty training. So I added additional chapters specifically about that to avoid those reviews because people with twins, they want that to be covered. How do you potty train two people at the same time? That's a very different game. So a lot of research, a lot of paying attention. The beauty of tell you the rank of every single book, you know, how many copies you're selling. You can see every single ad. You can reverse engineer everything. You can see inside of the book. You can even buy someone's book for a couple dollars or if it's on Kindle Unlimited, it's free. Read their entire book to see exactly what they're saying and figure out what people like and don't like. They just give you all the data. The companies used to pay millions of dollars for that kind of data. Now it's just free. Yeah, I think that's great advice for people who are thinking about writing a book to stop them wasting their time on a bad idea. Look to see what's happening out there and find out what's working, what isn't. So what do you think the main reason is for new entrepreneurs to fail to gain traction? So for authors specifically, it is they think that when the book is done, their job, they say, <laughs> oh, I'll write yeah, my book, yeah, I'll yeah. upload it to Amazon and Amazon will do all the work. And that's not true. Your job starts when the book is done. The, the book is the easiest part. It doesn't matter. I'm working with someone right now whose book is amazing. It's selling terribly. And he goes, but the book is good. I say, yeah, but no one cares because no one buys the book after reading it, right? They, they don't know what's inside the book until they've already bought it. So the actual content is the least important part of your book, which is a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. The book cover is more important than the title. The title is more important than the description. The reviews are more important than the description. So learning how people consume and how people buy is really important and understanding that the marketing is more important than the content traffic is more like an audience is more important than a great product. If you have a hundred thousand fans, it doesn't matter if your product's good or not, because you'll sell a lot of copies because they love you. Super fans will buy anything you create. Whereas if you have a great product and nobody likes you and you're not going to sell any copies and that's, 
a lesson. It took me a while to learn. When I made my first products, I was like, oh, I'm never going to give an affiliate commission. I do all the hard work. I kind of had it backwards. You think, oh, I worked so hard creating something, but an audience traffic customer base is so much more valuable and is worth a lot more than the product. So learning that lesson is hard. The other reason most entrepreneurs fail outside of authorship is they're chasing a new idea every week. They buy a new product every couple of weeks. They never finish the courses they buy. The challenge with the internet right now is that most courses work. Most systems work. You can make a lot of money drop shipping. You can also make a money money doing TikTok ads or doing services for local businesses. They all work, but you can't do them all. Like the same person can't do them all. The most valuable asset that you have is attention, your focus. So if you go, I'm going to learn business model A and you spend all day on it, that's eight hours focus per day on that one thing. As soon as you say, I'm going to learn two things, I'm going to start a podcast and a blog, they're each getting 50%. And they will, it will take you twice as long. If it would have taken you six months to succeed, now it would take 12. Most people are trying five or six or 10 ideas at the same time. And it dilutes their attention or focus so much that they'll never succeed. They've gone, they'll take six months to something that will take 10 years. So I think the lack of focus, the over attention, and most people spend more time consuming marketing content than training content. So they'll buy a course for even thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, and then they don't go through it. Most people watch video number one and maybe video number two. It's the same with books. Most people, like 90% of people don't read past the first chapter of any of my books. And that's not just me. That's every book, right? People just don't consume the entire thing. So that's really what you have to change. If you want to succeed, you have to be focused, which you have to choose one thing and say, I'm going to do this one thing till it works or doesn't work. That's how you really test the idea. You go through the entire training, you ask a lot of questions, you message the support team, you message the owner, you come to the Q&A sessions and you really try. And if it really doesn't work, and you'll know after a few months, but the number of people who, oh, this system doesn't work. And I'm like, well, you watched one out of seven videos. You didn't try anything. You didn't do any of the homework assignments. So some of my programs, my more expensive programs, give a homework assignment or a quiz after each lesson. And 100% of the people who don't do the assignments fail. It's a guarantee because people say this thing like, oh, I'll watch all the training once, then I'll come back and do the assignments or the exercises. Nobody ever does that. Nobody has ever done that for me. Nobody's done that for a lot bigger brands. A lot of my friends have much bigger companies. It's the same thing. Even if they have thousands of students, only one or two will actually finish all the training, let alone do the homework. So if you want to succeed, you just have to pick one idea, go through all of the training, really learn that one thing, master that one thing, and don't look at other ideas until you're sure that thing doesn't work. And then you put that to the side and you try the next idea. That's how you really succeed. Yeah, I get that. People always chasing the dream, looking for something else, right? I'm often asked, Jeff, how do I find my purpose? But I'm going to put this in a slightly different way to you, Jonathan. I'm, this is what I want to ask you. How can someone find their most leverageable skill or their assets and start making money today. So it's great to say buy one thing and stay on it, but how do we know we're on the right course? It's a great question. So this is where a lot of people get stuck. This is a little earlier in the cycle. So if you're in a situation where you don't have Investing program, you don't have time, you're working two jobs. I totally get it. I've been there. Okay. 
I know what it's like to be laid on the rent, to be totally stuck. I've been in those situations. So if you're in that type of situation, if you're at stage zero and you're just trying to make enough money to go from two jobs to one job or have time to work on a side hustle, what you have to do is self-assess honestly. Most people devalue their greatest skill or whatever they're good at. They go, well, I don't want to do this. I sometimes someone like, oh, I'm a really great accountant, but I never want to do accounting again. And I say, well, if you do freelance accounting for a year, you can triple your income and then you could spend the next three years off and not do accounting and have all that time as runway. And by runway, I just mean time to work on your new business, time to work on whatever your next idea is. So I think three phases. The first phase is quit your job phase, make enough money, that you don't have to work for someone else. Because when you're doing the exact same job, whatever you do for a company, as soon as you become a freelancer, you can charge about twice as much. Look at every single soldier who leaves the military, joins a private military contractor, becomes a mercenary. They're all making at least twice as much. And this is for government jobs. This is for any other type of job. Because wherever you work, whatever your boss is paying you is less than your worth. That's how businesses are profitable. If a business paid every single employee exactly what they were worth, the business would be at break even they would make exactly zero profit. And that's not true of any business. So if you're getting paid, it's lower than your worth. No matter where you work or who you work for, what company is the size of the company, that company won't exist. When you're the boss of yourself, you can make more money. So I'm working with some young kids right now. I reached out to and I'm mentoring them on a project because I love what they do. When I first met them, charging $30 an hour for coaching calls. And I said, whoa, can I buy a hundred coaching calls for you? And they said, what? Because <laughs> I, I knew they were undervaluing their skill. They were good at what they do. And now we work together and now they make a thousand dollars an hour. Okay. This is in four months. They went from $30 an hour to a thousand. You cannot do this as an employee. As an employee, you'll ask for like a 3% raise, or sometimes you ask for a raise that's at the rate of inflation. So you're asking for a break-even raise. If you have a large like brick and mortar business, on average, their profit is three to 5%. But when you work for yourself, you can double your salary by just telling the next client your new pro. When I started ghostwriting in 2015, 2016, maybe, yeah, around 2015, it was $800 a book. And I worked so hard. Those books all had to be 35,000 words, massive research. A lot of them were in medical niches, which means I had to have a lot of references. Some of those books had hundreds of references, medical studies to back up every single claim so that they would be compliant and accurate. Now I get paid 40,000 a book. What difference? I just kept telling people a higher price. Like I worked way harder then than I do now. Of course, I have a little bit of a reputation now, sure, but mostly it's people they go, what's the price? I say the price. And I just kept doubling it. So now I said 1,600, then I said 3,000, then I said 5,000, then 8,000. When I was at 2,000, actually, I met someone at a conference and he was like, what do you charge? I said 2,000 a book. And he goes, what are you, a coward? Double it. I said, okay, I'll charge four. He goes, no, double it again. Next day, someone paid me 10,000 for a book after that guy shouted at me. And I was like, whoa, I wish more people would belittle me in ways that would double my income. So it was revelatory. I've even had people, um, I was talking with someone who was like looking for a ghostwriter and I, he said, what does it cost? I said, 20,000. He goes, $20,000, you must be terrible. And he hung up on me instantly. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I better raise the, okay, better raise the price, right? Yeah. Like whatever you think is expensive, someone else thinks it's cheap, right? There are, everyone's level. There's always a customer with that higher number. Um, my sister's boyfriend is a really, really successful music video producer. He's with every famous person you can think of. And his best client is a woman in California with a rich husband who once a year, he pays for a music video. No one's ever heard of her. 
he pays a quarter million dollars for a music video for her because they have tons of money to them. It doesn't matter. They're billionaires, I guess. And that's his best earner of the year because it's the least pressure and no one's going to see it. And they just have this huge budget. They're not looking at money out, money in, right? They're not looking at return on investment. So it's this totally different mindset. So that can really be like life-changing work. So the beauty of working for yourself and in that phase, I know to go back to leveraging assets is realizing that you can keep raising your rates. So what you want to do is first have that mindset of, I want to be in control of my income. Yes, it's more risk, but it's also more reward because you can double what you charge and double it again and double it again. So you want to look at everything you have, which is your possessions, your skills, um, your relationships, and any asset you have. So for example, some people think of leveraging an asset as, oh, I have a car, so I'll go drive for Uber. But that's not leveraging an asset because you're using your time. If you're not in the car driving, you're not making any money. Leveraging your car is instead taking that car and putting it on Turo, which is where other people drive it, and the car makes money when you're not in it. So you, most of us use our cars one hour a day at most. So 23 hours a day, the car is doing nothing, right? It's sitting in a driveway or sitting in the parking lot at work. So imagine if your car is making money while you're not in it. And now while you're at work and your car is in the parking lot, well, your garage at home is empty. What if you set up your garage and rented it out for local vans? This is a really simple idea. And I know I've written about it in other places, but I did research. I was looking because I'm from Nashville. It's where I live like for high school and where a lot of my family lives now. And Nashville has so many bands. It's so known for all these bands. There are almost no places where you can practice. So I was looking, oh, where can a person practice for an affordable price if you have a band and you're just trying to get things together, you can't afford a studio or whatever. Turns out there's only one place and it's an hour away from where I grew up. So if you soundproof your garage, you're not home, who cares? You rent it out to bands all day. You could an extra $100 or $200 a day. Because most bands, right? If you go, oh, it's 20 bucks an hour, the five of them get together. Like, oh, it's a couple bucks each. They're happy to do it, right? You have eight a day while you're at work. Wow, I've just made an extra $160 by using an asset that I'm not using and that I don't care. I don't even, I'm, you're not home when the bands are practicing. You don't even care. So that's really the kind of mindset. And it could be, you have relationships. Maybe you have some really good contacts and you can introduce people together and you can profit from those introductions. So that's what I mean by relationships. So if you know someone that can give you a really good discount, like on hotel rooms in your town, oh, my friend is the manager of the hotel, I can get people a big discount on rooms that are empty. Then you can also bring people in and they'll pay you just for give like a 10%, whatever, in between fee for that introduction. And the next thing is your skills and assets. What are you really good at? And it can be what you're interested in and passionate about, or it could be what you're an expert in. So you want to really look at all of these different things and say, how can I monetize each of these assets? And when I'm working with someone, I say, look at what can you make the most money from and what can you make the quickest money from? So sometimes there's fast money. Oh, I can do this. I'll get paid today. Or this is something I work on, but I won't make money for a couple of weeks. So that's slow money. So I say, look at all of those things, leverage your assets. And most know the reason they're not making money is because they don't believe in themselves. So I sometimes will talk to someone, tell them a business idea and look, I'm not enough of an expert. I'm not smart enough or it's a stupid idea. Uh, this happened with a family member of mine. He goes, stupid idea. Nobody would ever do that. Someone else did my idea. They didn't steal it from me, but someone else had the same idea about a year later. That business does about $10 million a month. So this family member who told me my idea was stupid, basically they threw away private plane money because they didn't believe in themselves or maybe they didn't believe me. But a lot of people, I had a friend in college who was a hairstylist. I was like, oh my God, you have this skill. People need, everyone needs haircuts all the time. And he goes, no, it's stupid. No one cares. 
And he never wanted to talk about it again, right? He never wanted to do it outside of work. Huge, basically put a, like a wall in front of his income. And most people do that. Most people, if you come to them and you say, oh, you're an accountant, like work, like freelance work for me, because I only, a lot of businesses only need an accountant one or two hours a month or one or two hours a week, right? Smaller business. Now they'll pay you two or three times. Your full-time job will pay, but I can't tell you how many accountants say to me, I don't want to do it anymore. Or chiropractors, same thing. Every time someone hires me to write a book about weight loss, chiropractor, it's always chiropractors. They always want to get into fitness, but there's this idea we have that whatever we have isn't valuable or I don't want to do it anymore, even though it's the path to life-changing wealth. But if you switch to this mindset of what do I have that I can leverage to get to phase two, phase two is where working for someone else. So let's say you're working eight hours a day, full-time job. You start freelancing and you're making four times the money. So now you work two hours a day. The other six hours you used to work, you can now spend building your business. That's runway. And eventually the second business makes enough money that you don't have to keep doing that freelance thing you don't like anymore. I don't much ghostwriting anymore. I'd ghostwrite two or three books a year. I used to do 40. Wow. It's a huge difference, right? So it's it's such a good cash injection, right? Like a good book can pay for a new car or a family vacation or my kid's private school for a year. So that's why I do it because it's such a nice pay. But I get to choose the clients, but I worked my way up. So you don't have to keep doing it forever, but there is this, you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. It's this mindset thing of, I really want to change my life. I'm willing to do something that's a little bit uncomfortable because the reward is so big on the back end. Yeah, and it's not always just a little bit uncomfortable. And of course, then we've got fear, fear of rejection, fear of failure, things like that. So you started off ghostwriting $800 a book. You're at $40,000 a book. The difference is our belief systems, which is awesome. But not only writing books, when we go from small ticket clients to high ticket clients, how can someone find high ticket clients relatively quickly? There's two parts of it. You have to become someone who high ticket clients want to hire. And that's mostly attitude. The way rich people buy stuff is not the way normal people buy stuff. Private plane people are very different. And when I was living in, I met a lot of people that had like oil money. I'll never forget. I met this guy who we're just talking in a nightclub. It's one of those nightclubs that has no name on the door. Okay. The name on the sign, it's like that fancy. And he shows me his phone and there's just three dots on a map. And I go, I don't understand this game. Is this an app? What is this? He goes, Oh, this is the GPS tracking my three oil tanker. That's money. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and he, I'll never forget. Cause he, I had come with a girl that night and she brought a friend who he was trying to flirt with the not cute friend and failing. So this guy was the kind of, and he's young. He was the same age as me, early twenties, kind of money. You can never match. It's a level of money. No, you'll never make in anything else because oil money is crazy money, right? Billions and billions. And he could not like anyone to talk to him. He wasn't able to socially communicate. And then there was someone he didn't like. This is the second thing that happened. He goes, I don't like that guy. What's his, and the lady goes $25,000 and he hands her a credit card and goes, kick him out. I've never, that's not how normal people act. I've hated a lot of people in my life, but I've never thought I'd pay $25,000 to make someone who's just near me, not even talking to me, go away. So realize people who are really wealthy, and this could be any tier really, right? People who, who shop differently. So you want to create a mindset of, 
I deserve it. I got really successful as an author. I do not advertise. If you go to my website, it doesn't advertise ghostwriting services. It does not advertise coaching services. The only way to hire me is to say, hey, do you still do ghostwriting? Or do you still do coaching? That's how I get my high ticket clients because I have this high barrier. I only want to work with people that pursue me. What I, Whenever I go to a conference, I act like a little bit of a jerk. So you want to think of it as a knob. Okay. You want to dial it up and calibrate. You can go too far. I hate you. But if you're really friendly, people will think you're a loser. If you go, if you walk up to every single person and go, if I walked up to you right now, go, hey, I'm a ghostwriter. Do you want me to ghostwrite a book for you? Stinks of desperation, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you say, hey, what do you do? I go, hey, I'm a ghostwriter. But listen, if you're looking for a project, I own one or two a year at most. And I only work on things that are really interesting to me. If I put up that gate, you go, oh my gosh, you must be amazing, right? Yeah, it changes how you perceive it, even if I'm not. Even when I had no clients, that's why I acted. Yeah. So if you act like you have a full book, people will really be impressed. Um, what I don't do, I've never, whenever there's been a competition, when everyone said, oh, we're actually talking to four or five ghostwriters, I never get hired. I've never gotten hired that way. I've never gotten hired on a platform like Upwork. Whenever there's a competition, like a shark feeding frenzy for a job, I, I lose every time. I only do if it's one-to-one. So if people say to me, oh, we're going to talk to another couple, of, another couple of ghostwriters, I go, oh. And they go, what? I go, look, if you call me, you've already spoken to the best. If you want to go talk to other ghostwriters and play the price game, I don't do that. I don't negotiate because all, if I want a new client, all I have to do is tell 10 of my friends, hey, I'm open to a new book and someone will come to me. So I don't put up with shenanigans. And that mindset makes people really act differently. So if you create that mindset of, no, you're hiring a specialist, right? Like you're hiring a snipe ass and you're hiring the best of the best right? You're not just hiring a run of the mill, whatever, right? You're not hiring a grunt. You're hiring a best. If you act like that, people will pay differently. Nobody reads my um, examples. People ask me for sample writings. They never read it. And I can tell because they don't have, they never ask follow-up questions about it. Attention to that. Most, only one out of 10 people will even ask for a sample of my writing before hiring me. So the things we think matter, oh, people want to see your resume. People want to see your sample. No, people act like you're good, right? Oh, like def- imagine- definitely. If you were casting a movie and you Brad, you Brad Pitt to start, you go, okay, Brad Pitt, come to an audition. You think he would audition for you? Doesn't matter who you are, right? The highest level people do auditions, right? They act in a certain way. That's Now, you can go too far, right? And you can go too low. So you want to find that calibration, which for most of us is just acting a little bit more confident. We studied, there's this TV show called Californication where David Duchovny is an actor, but also a huge jerk. So I said, I'm going to be like him way, but enough like him, like in the, in the TV show, someone takes his book and turns into a movie and he hates it. So he punches the director in the face. You can only do that if you don't need money, right? That's how you act if you're successful, right? So switching to that behavior will draw more clients to you. And this is positioning and prospecting. Um, prospecting is where you message people and go, Hey, I do this. I do this. I do this prospect. That's prospect. And it's hard. It's a you kind of have to put the word out there. Positioning is where you let everyone know you're really good at something and you make them come to you. So someone came to one of my events earlier this week and I followed up with her and I didn't like what she said back. She was a really great prospect that everyone goes, oh, this is a... And she was like, oh, a bunch of people are pitching me right now and I don't really need help hiring a VA. And I go, I don't know why you think that's what I do. It's not you came to a two-hour training where I explained where I teach people how to build products and funnels and course creation. I did not explain how I run a VA company, which I do not. 
So I basically was like, oh, I don't want to work with you, right? That's positioning. Prospects could be like, let me talk you into it. Let me talk you into working with me. I don't do that. If you don't, if you don't want to pay the price, if you want to negotiate, then I'm not interested in that. And that's not a pride thing. That's how every vendor should ask. If you don't have to give everyone a discount. I Now, I always ask for discounts because some people give them to you. Ask not, get not. But um, I many times raise your prices. Can I get the old price? They go, no, the price has changed. And then I pay the new price. It happened to me recently. It just, it is what it is. That's how I consume. People will respect you when you stick to your guns. So if you project out there that you're good at what you do and that comes out by acting, because it's hard to say act confident, it's like a little bit of a jerk because we can all think of that. That's an easier thing to emulate, to act like, to fake it till you make it. That will really help you draw in like amazing clients. Like, oh, this person's confident. I want to work with the best. It's kind of like, another example is like, when you're single, no one's interested. And then you get a new girlfriend and suddenly all these other girls are interested in you and that girl break up and no one likes you anymore. There's something about that. Oh, I've got something good happening that makes other people want to work with you. And that's what you're trying to this behavior. Yeah, I totally relate to that. I could give you many, many stories on things like that or some advice. So you mentioned earlier about affiliate marketing and we we didn't go there so i want to touch on it now if i may so first explain what is affiliate marketing and why should every business add affiliate marketing to boost their revenue strategy so affiliate marketing is where you get paid for recommendations and you can get paid any on pays like two to twelve percent there are companies that pay 75 percent so there are companies that if you send them a customer that spends $100, they give you 75 A huge commission because traffic, as I said earlier, an audience is worth more than a product. So it's anywhere on that range. And the beauty of this is that you don't do anything. So let's say I give a recommendation to you, you buy a product, you have a problem with that product, you don't message me, you message their customer support. I never have to deal with it again. So I get to make without having to go through all the process of making a product, supporting a product, doing all that extra work. So that's another revenue stream. The second that's really great about it is it's one of the best ways to do research. So before you make a course, I teach a lot of course creation and product creation or write a book. Why don't you take your existing audience and different things to them? And then whatever they buy the most of. So let's say you recommend 10 products, product one through product 10. If product seven sells the most, we'll make my own version of product seven first. That's the product I will make because I'm paying attention to what my audience wants to buy. So instead of guessing or sending out a survey, hey, which of these interesting to you? They'll lie. Like they do, because it's very different to say, oh, that sounds interesting, tend to actually pay for something. So this is a great way to search. And now instead of buying data, you're getting paid to receive data. So the 10 areas that you're pretty well-versed in, you promote 10 different things there, you make a bunch of marks, you make that. And now you go from getting paid 50% of it or 75% to 100%. You get to keep all the money. And this is how you build out your product suite. This is how I designed it is by looking at what my audience buys and making my own version. So this allows you to make money. The third and most important part is that most of your followers will never from you. If you have an absolutely amazing offer, you will sell at 10%. So I have an offer doing really well right now with some partners that we week, one out of 10 people who goes through and watches the training video buys it. That's very high. Well, that also means that 90% of the people who not buy it. Now you can then go, I don't want to confuse my customers by showing them other things. 
that's the wrong mindset. You're going to lose, you'll probably lose about 75% of what you could make. So affiliate marketing can double or triple your revenue because people want to buy stuff, but maybe they don't want to buy it from you, or maybe they don't want your version of it. That's fine. Most of my income comes from affiliate marketing. So I promote these other products to those other nine people. You can say, oh, I just won't promote to my customers. Fine. So everyone who doesn't buy from you, now you have more things to offer them. So instead of having to talk about for a month and then there's nothing left to talk about, you can have to talk about two products a month for the rest of the year. And now you, instead of selling two things, you're selling 24 things. It's a huge difference. So that's really the opportunity is it's very important to understand mindset. You don't have to sell things you don't believe in. You don't have to sell things you're uncomfortable with. You don't have to sell things that you're weird about. That's my job. My best job as an affiliate marketer is my ability to sniff test. You can put any online business in front of me. I can go through the sales material and tell you if it's real or not because of my expertise. However, if you put a training about an investing, I wouldn't be able to do that. I don't have that expertise. That's why I would never promote anything about crypto or NFTs or investing or Forex, just metals, because I am not qualified to tell you, but you could put every single Facebook ads training in the world in front of me. And I can tell you, this works, this doesn't, this works, this, this person knows what they're doing, this person doesn't. I also know just about every single vendor. If I don't have a friend who knows them or a friend of a friend, I can research the vendor. I can look at their phone, get their refund policy. I can look at how they've treated past customers and I can get my followers a better experience. Recently, uh, one of the people who bought it through me was having a problem reaching customer support. And I said, no problem. I'll call the owner. I messaged the owner. They got a response via email within two or three minutes because you represent one customer. But if you come through me as the, the affiliate, I might represent five, 10 or 20 or a hundred customers. So I significant enough of a significant amount of money. They'll pay attention to me. And that gives, that's one of the benefits you get from going through someone like me, who's an affiliate. You go, Oh, why? Because I'll, defend you because that's my income, right? If you refund, I lose my payout. So I want to make sure that I only recommend products that work, refund them, and that you have a good experience and that you have good support and that I can protect you so that my business continues to thrive. So there's a lot more that goes into affiliate marketing most people think, because sometimes people think of it as like a sleazy thing or you promote things you don't believe in. That doesn't work. Your business, you'll go out of business. Everyone I know who did that, you might have a business for six months, but then everyone's, and you can't continue to do it. You have to completely change your name or change your business. Whereas I have people that have been following me for 10 or 12 years. The reason there is because there's a level of integrity in what I promote. So my job is not to put the most profitable thing in front of you. It's to put something in front of you that I know will work. work. Mm. And if you ask for a refund, you'll get the refund. That's part of my process. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you said earlier, when you have ideas, you write them down in your book, your journal, there comes a point where you think, okay, here's an idea. I'm going to run with this. What do you do, Jonathan, to get inspired? So a few years ago, I met someone who was like, asked me that question. He was like, so about your wife before you write each book, like, does she inspire you when you start each day? And I was like, that is, that's weird to me. That's no, <laughs> I thought that was so crazy. And he got really mad. Last time someone wanted to fight me. He wanted to fight me. This is last time I was in London about seven or eight years ago when I first met my wife and I was totally in love with her. And I was like, that's, I was like, I already had before I met her, like having a muse, that type of inspiration, that's not it. And he was like, well, my, my girlfriend inspires me to, and I was like, 
was a doctor. You got her to quit and now you sell coffee machines. Like you don't need inspiration for every job. So what I do is I believe, which is you create a process that puts you in a successful mindset. You watch any professional athlete, right? They always listen to the same song before they do their event or shoes or they have lucky socks. Repetition, it's not so much about the, oh, this is lucky. It's more of this puts me in the correct state of mind because familiarity. Oh, when I do these three steps, I always know it's step four. So when I'm writing, um, I have a very specific process for how I write, how I get ready and get into the zone. And this, you know, you talk about the zone or state or being like in the groove, but that really means that when you're writing and you're just, it just the faster you can get into that state, the more efficient you'll be as a writer. So what I do is I dictate in very specific places using a very specific process. So like I, if I have a dictation location where I like to walk while I'm dictating, I can't dictate sitting down. For example, you can put me in the same spot, put me in a chair. I can't do anything. That's knowing how I work, knowing where I need to go, knowing all of those things. Um, I like to dictate with my kids close enough that I can see them, but not close enough that they can shout at me, get picked up on the mic. So that's all part of it, where I walk around, how I walk around, whether it's clockwise or counterclockwise, that is not so much superstition as makes me efficient because it gets me in that zone. My body goes, oh, it's time to write. So creating a pre-writing ritual, whether it's drinking a cup of tea or listening to a specific song, um, there are certain things I do. So if I'm writing a book for women, um, I need to switch from the male to the female mindset. I'll listen to this song, um, the crazy heart song over and over again, because it makes me sad and it makes me more in touch with my emotions. So uh, I listen to that song a bunch when I've written a few of my really big books for women. Also, the thing is, <laughs> I change the way I communicate with people when I'm working on one of those projects is very different. My friends will be like, wow, you're so emotional. You're solely different. I'm like, I'm switched. So I become into emotional mindset because I'm in an emotional state to write that type of book. So I do things that get me in that mindset. Just like if you want to write something to a boxing match, right? You're about to box. You're not going to listen to that song, right? You're going to listen to a fight song, gets you pumped up, gets you energized, right? So creating that type of rich more important than an inspiration um, because inspiration is really, really hard to maintain. So I don't dedicate my books anymore. My, my first book I dedicated to my wife and I've written one to each kid. They don't care. My wife's never read any of my books. My kids, any of my books, right? It just, it's just this like thing we get from movies that we think the way people act. It's not. My real inspiration, what drives me the desire to give my kids a better childhood than I have. And I think that's what drives most successful people. If you have kids, it's that you want them to, have, and I had a pretty good childhood, but my parents set the bar pretty high. So I want my kids to like never be hungry, never be afraid, never be scared, be able to pursue whatever their kind of dream. It's being a musician or an artist or a lawyer, it doesn't matter, but I want them to have those opportunities. So that's what drives me. Um, I think, but there's a lot of people who, really want things, but don't take action. And it's hard to define. Like, I don't know if there's a perfect answer for why some people turn like disadvantage into advantage and some people turn disadvantage into an excuse for an action. But mostly for me, the real core mind, if you become someone who says, I'll do whatever it takes, then you can accomplish almost anything. If you switch to that mindset, if you go, it doesn't matter what obstacle you put in front of me in the way around it, right? That type of person. And that's, any really successful person, whether it's an actor, whether it's a musician, author, it's that mindset. That's really what separates me is that when I see an obstacle, when the rules change, where something gets hard, 
I just fight harder. If you tell me to do something, then I'm going to go do it. That's really, I think, the driving force inside of me. So motivation is, everyone's motivated in different ways. Really been my experience. Yeah, motivation gets us going. Determination keeps us going. So I want to talk about the technology then. So you walk around dictating your book. So what equipment are you using and how do you get it from there to be a book? So um, I have a lapel microphone. I use a Rode. They're between $30 and $50. What you want is any microphone that plugs into your smartphone and connects to your shirt. The reason I have this is it gets a cleaner audio, which means that then when I'm transcribing it, the error rate is lower. So that's why this makes a difference. It's the only thing you need to buy. Then I have an app on my phone. I don't know the name of it because it doesn't matter, but it's about $3 for the app. And I've used different phones. When I have an iPhone or Android, I use a different app. Look for is an app that automatically syncs to a cloud service. So it either automatically syncs to Dropbox or automatically syncs to Google Drive. While I'm recording, it's creating a backup. That's very important to me. I have this fear. This never happened to me, but I have this fear that like to a body of water on the way back to my computer after dictating and then I'll lose everything. So I'm all about backup. So that I'm always creating that in case it does. So that creates my audio file. So the total investment is the microphone. You can get a good microphone for like $20. You can get an app from the app store for three to 10. Just look for one that lets you, that automatically syncs to whatever cloud service you use. That's the only thing I care about. And then it, it's got good reviews that like, if there's a bunch of reviews, this is, oh, it keeps losing I wouldn't use that. That's all I look for. Once I do that, I then go to my computer and now on the computer, I'll rename each file. So when I'm dictating, what I'll say is the chapter number, the name of the book, and then the name of the chapter. So I'll go zero, zero, serve introduction, and then I'll start the chapter. So that way, the beginning of the audio file, it also has the name of the file. Then I go through and I name all the files in my computer part of the process because I've written so many books. I have to be really organized. Once I have the chapter names organized, I will then take it and I go to Descript, which is my preferred software, and I'll drag it into Descript um, and it will auto-transcribe with about a 98% accuracy rate. The cool thing about newer transcription softwares is that they'll separate the chapters. They'll separate the punctuation. They can even separate two speakers. It's a really great tool. You then either I... I don't do it myself anymore, but I used to, is I'll go through and just listen to the audio and make sure the words match. So I'll correct it. And there's so few mistakes that now I'll pay someone else to do that. If you hire a transcriptionist, you're going to pay um, anywhere from $1 to $3 per minute if you transcribe per minute. But if you use the software and then hire someone, you're going to pay 4 to $7 per hour. So this is a much more effective. I'm all about cost-effective, right? Yeah. So this allows you to clean transcript for pennies on the dollar much. This is the best process. And you can see the files and see the work. Once that's done, I will then take that trans. Um, and it's again, each file is a chapter and put it in chapter by chapter into Scrivener. Scrivener is my favorite software from word processing, depending on it's always on sale, but it's 20 to $40. So again, not expensive, a thousand times better than Microsoft word it blows Microsoft word out of the water. The beauty of um, Scrivener is that you can have little folders on the left side of the screen and so my books, some of my books will have hundreds of separate files and folders all in an order. I'm only working on one section at a time. This allows me to be totally focused. The reason a lot of people fail with books 
is they feel success. So let's say you're writing a book and it's going to take you three days to edit it. At the end of each day, you go, well, I haven't accomplished anything. I've only done one. But in Scrivener, if that same book is a hundred little files, you go, wow, I did 30 things today. So every time you switch to the next file, it's like a list and you get a dopamine hit and a feeling of accomplishment. This creates a positive feedback loop and means you're more likely to stay on the task. Having lots of little better than one big task because Mm -hmm. it's how we motivate. So it creates a sense of motivation. The other thing I love about Scrivener, which goes back to what I said earlier, is that I can move chapters and dropping them instead of copying and pasting, which is so hard in Word. So moving chapters around, I almost always move some sections or chapters around. And almost every time I move something around because once I've written it, it makes more sense. That's part of my process. And I really love that about that tool. So about five or six years, and it's just a game changer for me. It's hard to believe that something that's not expensive can be so amazing. It's a great word processor. And you can export in all sorts of different formats. Format your book and you can export it and it's ready to print from a hardback publisher or something. So once it's in Scrivener, I'm now in the phase, which is the first edit. The first edit, I'm going through the book, looking to see if everything I want is there. This is also an additive edit. So if I go, oh, I want to explain this more, I'll be adding. So I'm only going through, I'm not fixing spelling. I have the spell check turned off. I have the grammar check turned off. I don't want those green and red underlines appearing because that's a distraction. I'm not in that phase. Going through the book and I'm just looking for, is something missing or does something not make sense? Or when I move chapters around, let's say I'm three and eight around, anything in chapter three that talks about chapter five, I have to move around because it hasn't happened yet. So those are the things I'm fixing in this phase. I go, oh, I need to explain this. So this is where I do extra writing. And sometimes I'll add five, 10 or 15,000 words to a book in this part. So I do this one past and then take a break of two or three days so that my brain can reset. Some people, they push themselves so hard, they'll immediately go from what writing to the next edit. And then you can't remember the order of your book. So you might be editing chapter three and remembering chapter 12 because you didn't put enough space so I think of a few days off as like the Sherbert, right? As like cleansing your palate so that you don't mix up the end of the book with the beginning. During the, once I do that first added edit, the next thing I do is I go through, and this is where I'm really cleaning up the story. This is the edit um, or where, different. sometimes people do this in two phases. I just do it in one. This is where I'm just going through and I'm just perfecting it. You can separate it and do the perfection and then the grammar. I tend what I'll use is a tool called Pro Writing Aid. It's a grammar check, a spell check, and like it checks for complexity and all of that stuff. And just to you to go through an edit without hiring a professional editor, which can be very, very expensive. So that's really how I do my editing process. Once that's done, and I feel like the book is polished, part of it is knowing your book is going to have a mistake in it. Every single book published ever has a grammar mistake in it. It's impossible to catch them all really expensive editors who went to Harvard, they will make mistakes. It's just the nature of the book because there's too many words. You have words, you can't catch all of them, even if they do multiple passes. So you have to kind of accept that and not get caught because this is where people get stuck is they keep re-editing and rewriting over and over again because you'll, you'll be stuck there forever. It's okay if you publish a book that's not perfect. It's okay. So then you publish this book that's pretty good and out there. Sorry, you finish that and then you go to formatting. I've, you know, you can format it in Scrivener. I use um, a tool called Vellum that's Mac. Just, I've always used it. 
and it just formats in a really simple way. And that becomes the master. So now my vellum document is my master. And I, at the end of every page, this says, Hey, if you find a typo, go to my website, there's a typo page and you tell me the mistake you found. People love doing that. It stops people from leaving back book, push the new edition to every bookstore. And now the next person reads the book, that mistake is fixed. So that's why I do formatted in vellum. I then go to my beta readers and I will find people. When I was first starting out, I didn't have an audience. So I used to library thing where you can give away your book in a contest. So you can give away up to 50 copies of your ebook and people will give you reviews. That's part of the agreement. Well, that that is their jam. They love reading and reviewing books. Okay. So if you're fiction, you'll get a ton of people. Nonfiction, you're not going to get as many. Like fiction, you might get a want to read your book, nonfiction. I usually get 20 or 30 when I'm starting out. They'll give you those early reviews, say this chapter stank, this didn't make sense. I found this that can happen. I've had sentences that people misinterpret because of the commas in the wrong place. And that's great. I want to hear that there. I fix it. Or telling me, let me fix that. Or that's misinterpreted. That sounded like diff- that sounded differently in my head. That's really good to get. You get those beta readers and then the book go out. So beta readers are not there to read like your book when it's a rough draft. They're there when you go, I think it's ready for the bookstore. This is the final check. You push it to the bookstore, you put on Amazon, you put on Barnes and Nobles, all the bookstores, and the it's then going to go out and you'll start to early readers, early reviewers, and you will get some people that find typos. My best books, people are finding typos after tens of thousands of sales. Years later, someone was like, I'm like, wow, I can't believe there's still one in there. But now, years later, most of my books are typo-free because people have submitted so many and then I've gone and fixed them. So that's how I, from the need for perfection, being okay with imperfection because I'd rather people get the information than to have perfect grammar. So that's really the thing that's, which is like another while some authors hit. Yeah. Done is much better than perfect, right? You could edit and edit forever. Well, we're coming to the end now, Jonathan, sadly, I'm sure we're going to get you back, but before you go, here's a question I ask everyone. What's the most important thing you have ever learned? The most important thing I've ever learned, um, I learned this from someone I looked up to about 15 years ago, a guy named Harlequin, who said, the most precious resource you have is time. There's so many millionaires and millionaires on their deathbeds. They would give up all their wealth for another minute, another 10 minutes. You can't get it back. I'll never be six again, 10 again, 20 and 40 again. So this is why I work from home. This is why I'm near my kids all the time. This is why I never lock my office door. Doing a live training yesterday or the day before, and my son came in here and he was just going tearing through. He was making a mess, pulling lights down off the wall, stuff over. And I didn't want to lock the door. I'm like, I want my kids to want to be near me. So that is why I spend so much time with my kids. That's why I'm the one who... All four of my kids, their first word was dada. Like, it feels like such a win. My wife works so hard, but I'm four for four. I love being there for those any moments. I haven't missed any events. I haven't missed any of those things. And that's came from that lesson that like life is so precious. Some work so hard. The reason I work from home, my entire life is built around having freedom. And mostly for me, freedom means spending time with my kids, being there, being there, 
for their Taekwondo lessons and being there for their swimming lessons and being there for all those moments. That's really it. And that's really the value because the day, if you have money left over at the end of the game, at the end of when the buzzer rings, there's nothing you can do with it, right? You can pass it on to your kids, which is great. That's it. You can't, but you can't, you're never going to end up at the end of life with extra time left over, right? So that's why that's so important. That's the most important learned is that, and that ties back in. I talked earlier about the importance of focus and it's the same thing, your time and your focus. You just want to invest them in things that matter. And I, to me, those are the things that matter the most. Amazing. Jonathan, we've talked about some lots and lots of stuff today. I'm sure there's more. So if someone needs your help and wants to reach out to you, how do we contact you? And serve no master. Every single result on search, Facebook, anywhere is going to be me. It's my name. No one else is allowed to use it. It's everywhere. And free copy of one of my books. You can go to give to get free.com. I'm always giving away one of my books there. Most of the time I'm giving away my book, give to get sometimes I rotate love to give away my books. Of course you can go buy them on Amazon for 20 or $25, but I'm happy to give them away for free because I want people to get to know me. And those are the two best places. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you very much, Jonathan Green. You have been truly amazing some super content in there thank you so much well thank you for listening to secrets of success i hope you've enjoyed the show and it's helped to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your own dreams if you've enjoyed the show please hit the follow button leave a review and share you know it really does make a big difference because without your help we can't succeed. So go ahead, hit the follow button right now and please share it with a friend, just one friend or a family member. Maybe you can make a difference with the information we've had today from Jonathan. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me at our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really would like to hear from you. Well, that's all from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.